please take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I told you that what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians 3, I found to be personally life-changing uh, for me. I tried not to oversell that. Whenever you say something is life-changing, it uh, maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole there, a little bit of exaggeration. Of course, it's life-changing in light of everything else I know to be true from the Bible, but I really do believe in the power of, of the message that we're in the middle of. Um, it has certainly changed my life, and I believe in the power of that message to change the life of many people who are Christians, but perhaps have their priorities or their thinking, their strategy, if you will, for approaching life out of line. And I think that's a very easy thing to do, I should say, by the way. If you are a Christian person, meaning you've placed your faith in Jesus, I think it's very easy to misalign your priorities. It's, it's a very simple thing. Um, you know, chaos theory, uh, the, 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 the uh, principle of entropy is that, you know, things that are in order will gravitate towards disorder and gravitate towards chaos. Uh, the example that my teachers in school would always tell me is if you uh, do a really good job of picking up your room uh, and then you just live for a couple of weeks, when you, when you go back into that room here in a couple of weeks, things are not going to be where they were. And you may not know how they got in the condition that they're in. Sometimes, you know, as a dad, it seems like that's a daily occurrence in my house. When I leave in the morning, things, I don't know how things got to the way they are when I returned. I'm, but th- things do not gravitate towards nice, tidy order. Uh, there, there's something about being human that requires constant course correction if we're going to live any sort of purposeful life. And of course, as human beings, we get to pick what kind of purpose in life we're going to pursue. And that's where I think uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is so helpful and so life-changing. Because we are encouraged in God's Word to pursue a life that will have purpose in the eternal view of it. We are encouraged to look at the long-term rather than the short-term. Most investors and strategy people in this world will tell you that you are looking at the long-term if you just look out five to ten years. They'll say the mistakes most people make is they're looking at things in terms of days or weeks or months or what am I going to do this year, and, and they'll tell you that's the wrong way to look at it. And they'll say you need to think longer, like a decade or two decades or three decades. And there's some practical earthly wisdom in that. That's true. Um, But how long really is three decades? Um, I'm a couple of decades removed from from school. And in many ways, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Um, Many of you are more decades removed from school. And I've heard your testimony that it doesn't seem like it's been that long. How long-term is a view that only looks at the next 30 or 40 years of your life? Well, it's not very long-term. It's long-term in the sense of you're probably not likely to have much more than that on this earth. But it's not very long-term if we consider what happens when we die. And if we allow for the possibility of an eternity beyond that. Now, if you believe that when you die, nothing happens, and that's the conclusion of the matter, and you just kind of slip into an unconsciousness and... You know, like the New Age system of belief, you kind of just decompose in the ground. Of course, we have these, these, uh, these titanium caskets now, so you won't really decompose in the ground. You'll just decompose inside a box. So, uh, and then you'll just be some form of dirt or sediment or dust or ash inside a, 
you know, a titanium cube. But, you know, if you're not in a titanium cube, you'd be, be in a, a, a buried in a wooden uh, coffin. Uh, you know, you just kind of sink into the ground and some grass grows out of you and uh, some, maybe a tree grows out of you or something. And, but for all intents and purposes, your cognition, who you are as a person, essentially ceases when you die. If that's your view of things, then yes, uh, 10, 20 years is a, is, a, is a fairly long view because your whole view of life is a very, very small thing, a, a super tiny thing. And ultimately, I think we would ask the question, if that's our view of life, uh, what's the purpose of doing anything really strategic? You might as well, well, here's the counsel from God's Word. If that's your view of things, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. You could die. So, if your confidence is uh, only in this world and does not extend one iota beyond this world, you have no belief of God, no sense of morality, no confidence in real right and wrong. You simply think that saying things are right and wrong are good ideas for, you know, a society to function. But really, there is no divine authority, so where anything actually is actually right and wrong. They're all just human concepts born out of an evolutionary need. We die with each other. If you don't believe any of that, and this world is all temporary, and then we, we die and nothing happens, then tr uh, try to enjoy it as best you can. I don't think that many people are very successful even at doing that. We find joy and pleasure for a time, and then the reality of this world sinks in. But of course, in 1 Corinthians 3, we are called to something beyond that. In fact, in all the Bible, we're called to something beyond that. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gives us those Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We have a, a, an accounting of the kind of message Jesus preached. Jesus was what we call an itinerant preacher, meaning a traveling preacher, meaning he would go from city to city to city to city with a message about the kingdom of God. And the message was, for all intents and purposes, the same, practically the same, from place to place to place. He was talking about sin and the reality of sin and judgment and the need for a greater perspective beyond life and the reality of heaven and hell and and. Again, talking about his role as a savior that had come to bring life. And the Sermon on the Mount is an example of one of those sermons. It wasn't the only time Jesus preached that message. You get the sense of that when you read the other Gospels. And so much of the other Gospels are repeating refrains and phrases from that one Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you get about halfway through and... Jesus really starts to speak about the temporary nature of this world. And he says things like, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth where thieves can break in and steal and moth and rust corrupt. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves can't break in and steal and, and it can't be destroyed. And, and before that, he challenged you, Don't love money. He says, For where your heart is, there." Or for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if your treasure is money here on the earth, and that means your love for, for, for money indicates that your love is here on the earth, and it's a very temporary way of living. And, and these things are echoed all through the Bible, but for me, they really came powerfully in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's just begin in verse 9, and we'll lead into the new, the new stuff. 
And this is Paul talking to a group of Christians. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that and Jesus Christ. So he's talking to Christians. If you're a Christian here in the room this morning, he's talking to you. And he kind of, I think there's a hint of sarcasm where he says, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And then he goes on to say, but there was only ever one foundation that I could lay. So it's not like he made some great strategic decision. He just shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. People got saved. And assuming that the foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, verse 12, he encourages us. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Now, you might notice there are two categories of elements there. Gold, silver, and precious stone are not quite in the same pairing as wood, hay, and stubble. To my knowledge, you can still go on the the stock market tomorrow and buy an ETF for gold or silver. You can go to the jewelers and spend lots of money on precious stones and diamonds. Um, Probably can go out and grab some wood and some hay and some stubble from the yard uh, free of charge. So two different categories of things. But he's saying, look, you can build with whatever you want on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And how well you did, verse 13, each one's work building, will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. Now, this is not the threat of hell, which we reminded everyone about next week, This is or last week. This is not about, when it says fire, we think hell. This is not about hell. This is the practical conclusion of judging a building. The metaphor is a building. We're talking about a foundation. We're talking about building on a foundation. It's a building. What's one of the toughest tests that you can put to a building? You can light it on fire. And most buildings, when you light them on fire, they're not going to do very well. And last week I told you that my house would not do very well. If you lit it on fire, it's made of wood. It's made of simple things. But there are buildings where if they were lit on fire, all the consumables, all the combustibles inside might burn down. But when it was all finished and the rubble was picked through, they'd have to sweep out everything that was burnt to ash and the stuff that would remain, there would still be some, some uh, granite and some marble and some precious stone. And it might not be in the same artistic form that it was when it was crafted, but it would be there because it would endure to some extent. He says, so fire is going to be the test in verse 14. If anyone's, if anyone's work which he has built on that foundation of Jesus, on it, if anyone's work endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. And even now I'm resisting the urge to just preach the message again and again and again because it is such a powerful concept. You are supposed to live your life in pursuit of heavenly reward because if you look past the next 10, 20, 30 years, if you look past the incident of your untimely death whenever it comes, that's all that's going to matter. So the Bible, Jesus, Paul, 
They're all calling us in pursuit of this heavenly reward. And it says there are going to be Christians who do not live their life in the pursuit of things of eternal value. And it says to those Christians, when they metaphorically stand before the Lord and metaphorically see the building of what they've invested their life with, essentially go up in smoke, they will suffer loss. And you don't have to imagine real hard to understand that. If you had spent, as some people do, decades of your life slowly building the home of your dreams, slowly as, as the income was available to you, as the money was there, slowly upgrading and building out and adding on and refinishing. If you spent decades of your life doing that, and then one day you get a call while you're away at work and they say, your house is in flames and you show up and it's all just burned. It doesn't take a great imagination to think about what that loss might feel like. How much worse will it be for Christian people whom God has saved if they stand before the Lord and the evaluation of all their good works after they got saved is you didn't do anything for the kingdom of God. You didn't do anything that mattered. Here is Jesus Christ who died on the cross to redeem you out of a world destined for destruction anyway. And He gave you eternal life. And He gave you the gospel. And He gave you the Holy Spirit. And He gave you the power to do something that mattered. And for 40 years, this little pile of precious metal is all you've got to show for everything God gave you the freedom and the opportunity to accomplish for His kingdom in the world. And so it says they'll suffer loss. Yet, he himself will be saved. Because again, this is talking to Christian people. The foundation is Jesus Christ. What you do on the foundation are your works. But if the foundation was your works, you wouldn't be saved to begin with. You're not saved because you do great things. You're saved because of Jesus. And there will be Christian people saved because of their faith in Jesus Christ who nevertheless stand before the Lord and figure out that they had wasted their life. Just threw away, flushed down the drain, the life and the opportunity that God had gave them. And it says they're going to suffer loss, but they'll be saved yet so as through fire. Which is Paul's metaphorical way of saying, <laughs> by the skin of their teeth, <laughs> there will be some, by the skin of their teeth, in other words, not the skin of their teeth as in their own work saved them, but if you had looked at that person, you would see practically little difference between the way they were living in the world and the person who's now being condemned to eternal hell without the foundation of Jesus. And it's easy to get that way as a Christian. It's easy to fall into that pattern. To, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then practically not live any, any different from and I'm not talking about. I'm not even talking about sin. Uh, certainly, it's easy enough to sin. Thankfully, we have forgiveness for it. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about just what you do productive-wise. This is about building. This is about works. This is about production. God has given you, Christian, an amazing opportunity. <laughs> 
to guilt-free pursue productive things for his kingdom. And this is what Christian freedom is about. He hasn't looked you in the eye and says, no, do this and only this. That's what happens when you go to work, right? (laughs) You ever go to work and you're like, hey, I got some pretty good ideas or something I'd like to try. And they're like, no, 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 just do me a favor. Put this here over and over and over again. This is, we're not interested. We didn't hire you for your creativity or for whatever, you know. Some of you have worked jobs like that. As a matter of fact, I think that, you know, every man at some point in their time needs to work a job like that for the experience, if nothing else. It teaches you something about your insignificance in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> here you are, and you, you go all through school, and everybody tells you, pursue your passions, pursue your dreams. And you look up, and you're like, I don't, it doesn't matter what I'm passionate about. What they want to pay me for is to move this box here. That's it. Okay. But God has been better to you than that. And he's given you tremendous freedom to do something productive for his kingdom. And there are going to be people who just squander it away. Nevertheless, because of the faithfulness of Jesus, not because of their faithfulness, but because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, they will make it into heaven based on their faith in the Lord. But then we turn our attention to verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which you are. Now let's just pause there. This is the first little section. I'll call this section building or breaking. Building or breaking is what I will call this section. Now what Paul is doing here is he is using an analogy that they knew really well and we don't have any practical idea about. When he says, you are the temple of God, that conjured up images in their mind. We don't have anything like that. Uh, You have never seen a physical building representing a temple of God. This church certainly is not it, believe me. (laughs) You know, uh, we have, for some constructive purpose, I'm not sure, a beam right here in the middle of the sanctuary. I don't know why it's there. I'd... Uh, I don't know, maybe that was the only way to add this portion onto this. Originally, it was this little portion, and then they added that wing. And I'm assuming that this is somewhat integral, but I know this is mostly just ductwork here. But above that ductwork, there must be something structural that that beam has to hold, whatever it is. Nathan's disagreeing with me. That's okay. He's disagreed with me a lot. Sometimes he's right. My point is, look around. This is not the temple of God, okay? This is, (laughs) you would not want to serve a God uh, where this was his majesty on display, all right? And and that's not true just of our church. Uh, You could make a little trip around New Paris and and Richmond and, and look at all the elaborate buildings that have been constructed and ask yourself, is this really a glorious representation of God's magnificence? Now, we clean around here. And basically what we try to do is we try not to make decisions that will deliberately make the place look bad, okay? But this is not the temple of God. We don't have a good frame of reference for this. But if you were to actually, you know, spend some time on the internet Googling and trying to get people's concepts of of the ancient temples of the ancient world and all of the elaborate decorations an effort that would go into constructing something worthy of their God. And then if you were to look up um, 
depictions of what the temple of the God of Israel looked like when it was originally constructed. Because we have so much description about what went into the construction of the temple in the Old Testament. If you were to look those up, you would get a very different feeling, perhaps, than just sitting in, in this room right here with the painted paneling and, and all the things that I still look and chuckle at a little bit. So when Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? He's not talking about you individually. He's talking about the Corinthians as a whole. If you read this individually, it's not going to make sense. In fact, it could lead you to a bad place. Now, it's true in other places in Scripture, we're referred to as being the temple of God in an individual way, but this is talking about the collective, and the context makes that clear. He's just talked about um, how he's shown up and he laid the foundation for the Corinthians, and they've decided how they're going to build on that foundation that Paul laid. And now he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. The word defile and destroy are the same. Both words just mean destroy. And what it's simply saying is, if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. Now that's a scary thought. It's meant to evoke the imagery of somebody who just went into the temple of God where all the precious things of the Old Testament took place and just took a, a flamethrower through the whole thing. That would be an insulting and offensive thing to think about. Um, and it wouldn't be hard for the Corinthians to think if someone would walk into the temple of God and just blow it up, God would have something to say about that. And what Paul is saying, you are the temple of God. And if you go into your local church, your congregation, the people there who the Spirit of God is dwelling in, and you break apart what's going on in that local church, and you destroy the work of God in His temple among His people, God will destroy you. That's what he's saying. Now, go back to verse 3 of chapter 3, and you'll see where this is coming from. He says, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? When people come to the church and they introduce division and envy and fighting and bickering, when they do destructive things among God's people, not to the building, but among God's people, God is not quiet about it. It's a big deal to Him. Breaking things can be fun sometimes. Uh, it's fun when you're a ornery brother to go knock down your brother's sandcastle at the ocean trip. That's a fun thing to do. It's fun to... <laughs> it's fun. It's fun to... To, to the, the fun part of remodeling a house is when you can sledgehammer things apart or break things apart if you've never done it before. Now, if you've done it before, then when you slam a sledgehammer to something, all you're thinking about is, man, it's going to stink picking all this stuff up and throwing it away. But initially, it's fun. Breaking things can also be necessary. Sometimes a doctor will break a bone to reset it for an ultimate good purpose. But the church belongs to God and He dwells there. It is not like a sandcastle or a remodeling project. It is not yours to break. It belongs to Him. And what He's doing there, you may not understand, but it is not yours to mess around with. 
It's not mine either to mess around with. We're supposed to be building, encouraging, exhorting, holding each other to the word of God, teaching how to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Conflict, strife, division is not supposed to be the theme. It's not supposed to be our work. The church is God's to shape and form. You don't get to play doctor with it and say, well, what happens if we break this bone and then reset it this way? What happens if we sweep this out and throw this in? You don't get to tinker with it. This is God's. Your role, and it's a great role, your role is to build. To build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, this is good news for you. Because it says the local church, which we're about 40% strength at right now, but the local church is a literal golden opportunity. If you want to know what you can do that's worth eternal value before God, try to build and encourage what's going on in the local church. That's worth eternal value. That's what God wants. You don't have to rack your brain about what's worth eternal value. God has called us to build here, not to break. Not to break. Verse 18, look at the next section. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness and again, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, this is a big deal. This section, if the first one was breaking or building, okay, or building or breaking, this one is the two let no ones. There's two of them. There's one in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. There's another one in verse 21, let no one boast in men. He's making two points here. Let no one deceive himself. First one, self-deception. The person who is deceiving themselves is saying... God will approve of my worldly wisdom. That's self-deception. God will approve of my worldly wisdom. Notice what he says. The wisdom of this world, verse 19, is foolishness with God. He will not approve. For it's written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. The wise person thinks that they can invest, invest, invest in the world, in the world, in the world, and then they get caught in that philosophy, trapped and accounted for on the day of judgment. How do I know that? Verse 20, and again, it's written, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. Futile means unproductive things. You, you know, build a nice house, have a nice career, save a lot of money. The world sees all these things as incredibly productive. God says they're futile, meaning they're unproductive. Why are they unproductive? Because they're not going to last. He doesn't approve of worldly wisdom. He will not improve of your worldly wisdom. God is not investing in this world. God is not investing in gold. He's not investing in the dollar. 
He's not building houses or buying land. God is only investing in one thing in this whole world. You know what he's investing in? In the whole world. People. That's it. People. Why? Is God dumb? No. God has surveyed the whole world. And he has come to the conclusion that it is all destined for destruction. And he's going to remake it into his own kingdom. He has surveyed it and said, this place is sinful. This place is painful. It is under the curse and the shadow of death. And it is going to be judged. And out of all that is in the world, there's only one thing that he is investing in. And those are people whom he can redeem from a valueless proposition and make valuable forever and ever in his kingdom. That's it. So God is not going to look at the wisdom of a person who thinks, I've got a great idea. I'm going to invest in land. I've got a great idea. I'm going to pour my energy into self-improvement so I can have the best career. I've got a great idea. I'm going to make myself the best softball player, the best tennis player, the best golfer, the best basketball player. I've got a great idea. I'm going to do this in this temporary world. Paul says, this is self-deception. God is going to make the wisdom of this world foolishness because he has determined the thoughts of the wise people to be unproductive. He is only investing in one thing, people. People. Now, that doesn't mean that with reckless abandonment, we disregard everything that there is in the world. It means this. If we are going to invest in something in this world, the only right and productive way for a Christian to do it is with their mind towards some heavenly productivity. And that's easier to, th to see than you think. For instance, when I go to work tomorrow, and Lord willing, I will go to work tomorrow, I am not investing in my career for the sake of my own ambition. I am going to work to honor the Lord with His command to provide for my family. I am going to work to honor the Lord with His command to love my wife. I am going to work to honor the Lord with His command to honor my employer and to do the best I can while I'm there. But if I had no other motivation in going to work than to try to make money and get wealthy and put something aside, that's all wood, hay, and stubble and going up in smoke. And whatever wisdom I think is in it, God has determined there ain't. Motive matters. It's the Christian's responsibility to look at their motives and to ask, you know, do I really have a wise motive behind what I'm doing? Hold that thought for a second. The second, let no, let no one. Verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In other words, for death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. In other words, let no one boast in men means do not align yourself or be proud of the people that you identify with. That's the idea. 
And that's what the Corinthians were doing with the whole I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. Don't do that. And it's actually good news because what he says is don't do it because you all are on the same plane in that you all belong to the Lord. You all stand to inherit all things as children of God. And everything is His. So to try to say I am of some superior value because I represent this person's school of thought is foolishness. It's foolishness. If you are a child of God, you are an inheritor of everything that belongs of God, right? Right? Uh, Nathan, someday you're going to die and, and when that happens, hopefully many, many, many years from now, um, somebody is going to inherit whatever you own. It may not be much, it may be a whole lot, but somebody's going to get it. And hopefully it'll trickle down to, you know, Walter and Abby and Millie at some point in time. But that's the theme. Why? Because they're the kids. Understand the value proposition of being redeemed to become a child of God. That's what he's saying here. Don't try to become a disciple of Apollos or a Peter. Be very satisfied in being a child of God because you stand to inherit all that belongs to him. Which is way better than saying, I want to be aligned with this guy's reputation. You're a child of God, man. You don't need to you know, hook your wagon up to somebody else. It's okay to just be Christ's, to be God's. So he says, don't, it sounds incredibly ridiculous when you think about that, don't brag about <laughs> being a disciple of some other guy. There's nothing to brag about there. And then we get to my favorite passage, and this is where we're close. So we had the building and the breaking, then the two let no ones. This is my favorite part. And honestly, it's become, behind chapter 3, my second favorite part in all of 1 Corinthians is right here in chapter 4. Now, just the first five verses. Let a man so consider us. This is how you should think of Paul and Apollos and Peter. This is what he's saying. Let somebody think of us like this. As... Servants, same word as slaves, by the way, in the Greek, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, what's a steward? We don't use that word very often. A steward is someone who's been given something to manage. That's it. In, in terms of the Roman slavery system, a steward was the person who was put in, he was a slave himself of the master, and he was put in charge of the other slaves to do the master's purpose. So he's saying, look, if you want to think of us, don't think of us as the master. We are servants of Jesus Christ, and we've been given a responsibility. What's their responsibility? What are they stewarding? The mysteries of God. It was Paul's job, it was Peter's job, it was Apollos' job to teach the Bible. That was their job. That was what they'd been given. They weren't, don't think of us as employees, who you can boss around because you pay our salaries. Don't think of us, this is Paul talking, don't think of us as visionaries who are going to come up with a great way forward for the body of Christ. Don't think of us as executives and CEOs. I was talking to a guy just two weeks ago and he said, you know, you really ought to go back to school and finish your business management degree instead of just the Bible degree you have. Because even if you want to go into the ministry, there are a lot of churches that really need a pastor with a strong business sense. That's, that's the belief in the world. 
And Paul says, no, just think of us as being servants of Jesus, slaves of Jesus Christ, who've been given something of a responsibility. That responsibility is the teaching of the Word of God. And then he says in verse 2, Moreover, it's required that a steward, someone who's been given something to manage, be found faithful. Now, if you want to understand what comes next, you better understand that word faithful. This is what he's talking about. It's required that a steward, you know, if I give Drake something to manage and walk away, it's required of Drake, I'm requiring of him that he's faithful with whatever I've given him to manage. He may not always make every decision right. He may suffer some loss, but I expect him to be diligent and faithful with whatever it is I've given him. Whatever happens, happens. But he's got to be faithful. And he says it's required of a steward that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. That sounds almost arrogant, doesn't it? (laughs) He says, God has given me a responsibility. And I want you to know, you church in Corinth, some of you think that I'm not a great teacher. And so you've said, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Peter instead of I'm of Paul. I want you to understand something. It's a small thing to me, whatever your opinion is. That's what he says. Doesn't matter to me. In fact, I don't care what any human court thinks. That's what he says. And you say, man, that sounds really arrogant, doesn't it? Sounds arrogant. But then look at what he says. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It's not arrogance. Church needs a pastor. Church calls a pastor. When a church calls a pastor, does the pastor then become an employee of the church? Because if the pastor becomes an employee of the church, if that's the relationship, then the church is the employer. And the employer is going to make judgments about that pastor. And the pastor is going to have to respond to those judgments if he wants to keep his job. What Paul is saying here is that is not the relationship that I hold with you or with any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself because the church doesn't make Paul a steward of the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God made Paul a steward of the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God is who he better be concerned with when it comes to evaluation. And if he's concerned with that, and the church doesn't like it, he can live with it. That's why he says it's a small thing. In fact, if he's concerned with God's evaluation, and at times he doesn't like what's coming out of his labor, he can live with that. I'm not going to be evaluated in this regard in terms of faithfulness by any human court. Now, he's not talking about sin. We're not going to get but one more chapter into Corinthians, into this letter, when we we get the command that we have to judge sin in the church. So that's a different subject. He's not talking about sin. And he's not talking about false teaching. I just get to stand up and teach whatever I want and no human being gets to say anything to me. He's not talking about either one of those things. Those things can be seen by the human eye, can be evaluated by the human eye, and can be issued a verdict on by the human eye. What he's talking about cannot be because what he's talking about is faithfulness. Faithfulness.
He says in verse 4, For I know nothing against myself, but I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Now, there's two sides of this. And this is, this is why he says I don't even judge myself. And maybe you can experience this too in your life. I don't know. He said, I don't know of anything that I'm doing a really bad job at. I don't know of anything against myself. I don't think that I'm being lazy. I don't think anything against myself. That's what he's saying. Nevertheless, just because I don't know of anything against myself, that doesn't mean I've got a that doesn't mean I'm good. That doesn't mean I've got a pass. Ultimately, even I could be satisfied with my work and self-deceive that I've done a great job and stand before the Lord and find out that he was not satisfied. That's what he's saying here. No human court is going to be the ultimate judge of my faithfulness. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. When the Lord judges, He will not judge based on what everybody else sees. He'll judge by what's going on in here. I have to tell you, this is... Um, this has been my saving grace in ministry, just for personal testimony. Um, I don't know of any open sin in my life that is going on. If there were, you should, you should deal with it, absolutely. If I was in some illicit affair, the church absolutely should deal with it right away, uh, publicly. Um, you know, I should be removed from office. That should be done. I don't, I don't know anything like that. Um, I'm not engaged in any false teaching. If you think I am, please come tell me. I want to talk with you about it. I want to understand. Let's open God's word and let's see where where I'm in error. I don't want to be in error. So if I am, let's open the Bible and let's see it. But all the time, what gets pastors and teachers in trouble is people who just aren't satisfied with the job that they're doing. And they don't, eh, you're not teaching any false stuff, pastor. You're not... It's not that. No, there's no sin going on. I'm not saying anything like that. They just have some other complaint. And whatever the complaint is, it usually boils down to effort and faithfulness. And that's hard. That is a really hard thing. Um, And what does a pastor say to that? What does a guy like Paul say to that? What does a teacher say to that? Say, well, it's a small thing for me to be judged by other human beings. And I need to work really hard here not to try to justify myself and stand up and tell everybody all the hard work that I do all the time. Because just because I don't know of anything against me doesn't mean I'm off the hook. All I need to do and all I need to be focused on is, back to the first part, building on the foundation of Jesus Christ the best that I possibly can. And if because all removes me from here, moves me somewhere else, that's okay because ultimately He is my judge. And you know, there's a wonderful thing in your life when you get to the point where you're okay with God being your judge. Not because you're a perfect person. That's not it at all. But because you know the Lord's evaluation of you does not take into account all of the sin that you've committed in your life. (laughs) That's dealt with at the cross. But you know the Lord's evaluation of you is like a father to a son or a father to a daughter. 
And every good father wants their children to do well. Every good father wants to celebrate when their child does something well. Every good father's like that. Every good father wants to be proud of a child that works hard. And yeah, every good father will recognize times in their child's life when they're not doing what they should be doing. And if God looks at me and he recognizes that I'm not doing what I should be doing, I'm not giving it my all, and if he judges me by moving me out of this spot or moving me here or putting me on the sidelines for a while to get my attention or changing my role or function in some organization or church body, if God does that, that's okay with me. It may not be pleasant. It may hurt. But it's okay because I know God loves me. And it's the work of a father, not a judge. There's something really wonderful in a Christian's life when you get to the point where you're okay with what the dad, sometimes I lose my temper, in your life because you know it's not wrath. As a dad, sometimes I lose my temper and what my kids see is wrath. I wish that wasn't the case. I try really hard not to make it the case. Even when those kids need discipline, I try never to make it in the screaming and the hollering and the wrath. And I try to apologize when I've blown up like that to my children, which can be a humbling thing. But God is a better father than I am. And his wrath towards my sin, towards my evil, was poured out on Jesus at the cross. My relationship with God is no longer one of a terrified convict standing before a judge who could burn me to a crisp. My relationship with God as as a son to a father. And if he allows judgments and difficult things to happen to me, I'm okay with that. Because it doesn't change our relationship. I still inherit eternal life. I still inherit every promise he's made. He's not forsaken me and he still loves me. And this is where we read in the scripture, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. I may go through some painful stuff. The church may split. Half the people may leave. And I may look back at 10 years of ministry and say, what did I accomplish? I don't know. But I don't have to be terrified that it's the wrath of God. I'm okay being judged by Him. It's a Father's work. It's not, it's not a terrifying thing. Okay, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that all Christian people can come to peace with the fact that you love them and you are a father to them and that they can trust you with your evaluation of their lives. It's an empowering thing. It's a freeing thing. Father, we can be slaves to our concern about other people's opinions of us. Even when we don't want to admit it, it can torment us and keep us up at night. It can make us awkward and uncomfortable in situations that we need not be. It can cripple us or it can lead us to do things we should never do. Father, help us to always receive the exhortation, the instruction that comes with being in the fellowship of your people when it pertains to sin, when it pertains to doctrine. But help us to take confidence that the evaluation of our faithfulness is ultimately your task. I thank you for that work. I thank you for the freedom it provides. Help us to do well with it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.